invite you to turn with me as we continue here this morning to Ephesians chapter 6. Many of you uh, are probably familiar with a writer that I was reminded of uh, once again this past week. Someone mentioned that uh, he was reading C.S. Lewis. Uh, Lewis, as you know, is the author and apologetic uh, writer of uh, many uh, books uh, and series of books, particularly known as the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you may be uh, familiar with, is a story of, of four children, Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy, who unexpectedly enter into the land of Narnia as they're playing uh, hide-and-seek in this uh, large uh, English house. Lucy's the first one. Uh, to go into the wardrobe, which is, and otherwise, I mean, the wardrobe is in a, a basically an empty room. Uh, Edmund uh, comes later, but eventually all four of the children follow along into the land of Narnia. While they're in Narnia, they have a great adventure, which takes place over an extended period of time. And the interesting thing is, is they come back and forth from the wardrobe, from Narnia, into uh, the uh, empty room there where the wardrobe is, it, it seems that time has not even passed. It's as though the two worlds, Narnia and the real world of the professor's house, are existing side by side, but in totally different time zones. This book is about more than just these two worlds. There's a third world in this story that gets only brief mention in the very first chapter on the very first page of the Chronicles of Narnia. Let me read that to you as a quote. It says, Once there were four children whose names were Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. This story is about something that happened to them when they were sent away from London during the war because of the air raids. They were sent to the house of an old professor who lived in the heart of the country, 10 miles from the nearest railway station and two miles from the nearest post office. You see, there is more to this story and that world and this world than meets the eye. The world during the time of that writing of that fiction story, is at war in a great world war. But the world also contains the professor's house and the wardrobe, where there is also access to another world, a bigger world than can be imagined or even seen. There's more to the world that the children live in than meets the eye. Can't that easily be said about the world that we live in here today? There is more to the world that meets the eye as we see the world about us today. The truth is really real, but 
Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy find another world that is equally as real. Our limited vision and our perception, you see, tends uh, to uh, limit the way we see things, even in this world, our immediate surroundings. And at the very least, we sometimes overlook and get so absorbed in what is going on right around us, in front of us, that we can see and feel and taste and touch our homes, our jobs, our neighborhoods, our schools, our churches our families and our friends, and it limits our understanding and our view of what is going on all about us. See, the Bible very clearly teaches that there is something more to our lives than just what we see or physically experience. You see, the letter to the Ephesians speaks several times of a reality that is beyond our immediate perception, but which is still nonetheless very real. This passage here this morning speaks about principalities, powers, world rulers of this present darkness, spiritual hosts, forces of wickedness in heavenly places that are real. Do you ever think about that part of Reality. Here we are reminded that there is something greater going on in front of us and around us that is not limited to our own little worlds and wardrobes. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 12 through 17. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The grass withers, the flowers fade and fall, but these words of our Lord God stand and endure forever. Heavenly Father, Almighty, gracious God and King Jesus Christ, we're thankful, Lord, that the commander of your Lord's army has gone before us. We're thankful, Lord, that you, through our Savior Jesus Christ, have subdued and conquered all his and our enemies. We're thankful that we can come to you with a sense of assurance and peace and rest, even if it means, Lord, the battles that we face between now and his coming are intense and fierce. We need not fear because we know 
you, our Lord and God, are with us. Father, direct our thoughts, our minds, to the sound of your voice in these words here this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. See, the Apostle Paul, in his writings, reminds us that there is a battle going on about us, but at the same time, he reminds us and refers to our triune God as a God of peace. He says in Romans chapter 15, at the end of chapter 15, May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. He says to the Thessalonian church, Live in peace with one another. Grace, mercy, and peace. He closes several of his epistles. For Jesus, we know, is the Prince of Peace. King of kings and Lord of lords. And yet, he is the very one that reminds us that he did not come to bring peace on this earth. I did not come to bring peace, he said, but a sword. We are called to be peace-loving people. And Paul says in Romans 12, and as far as it depends upon you to be at peace with all people. But at the same time, we are called to be warriors in our Lord's army, fighting soldiers engaged in battle every day. So we read here in Ephesians, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Paul reminds us, we were reminded last week, to gird our loins, to put on the belt of truth. Stand therefore, having fastened on that belt of truth. The Christian belt is truth. Referring to God's truth, but also to the truthfulness, that is, the sincerity of heart that dwells in each one of us. Christians must know and understand that truth. Biblical doctrine, which is a a, a word that is sometimes so distasteful among people, Christians. We ought to understand that biblical truth and as our only rule for faith and practice. We must grow in grace and knowledge of that truth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, understanding the doctrine of the Bible so that we might go about the doing that doctrine day to day. For that doing is based upon the truth of God's Word. Then Paul tells us there is that breastplate of righteousness here, the breastplate of righteousness. The righteousness here is both that, that imputed righteousness of Christ that is placed to our account, that is credited to our account as Christians through faith by God's grace, that we are able to stand before God, justified before Him in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, but it is also the actual righteousness of each and every believer 
specific acts of personal obedience, our growth in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ based on the doctrine and that truth of God's Word. The work of the Spirit sanctifying us, making us holy, that we might be called the very righteousness of God. So we put on the breastplate of righteousness that has to do with our daily living, our moment-by-moment obedience and walk with our Lord as a soldier in the military has issued the battle gear that he needs to go into the battlefield. So the soldier of Christ is told to put on the full armor of God. The belt of truth, a breastplate of righteousness, Shoes of the gospel of peace, a shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. The ultimate end of these battles is not continued war. You know what it is? It's peace. Peace that surpasses all comprehension and understanding as our hearts and minds are guided by Christ Jesus. The ultimate end of these battles and the putting on of this armor is that there would be peace with God and peace with our brothers and sisters and with the world in Christ. And that in turn pushes us forward to share with confidence and boldness the gospel, the good news of peace. So Paul is saying here that to resist the devil, we must have experienced firsthand that peace. Peace with ourselves, peace with others, peace with God. The gospel of peace. And in turn, that prepares us and motivates us to go into the world and share the gospel with others. So that they will enjoy that same peace and rest. So now Paul continues this list of armor. We're going to cover the shoes, the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, and the helmet of salvation this morning. And next week, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Paul says here, And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, go and proclaim that peace. What is the gospel? The gospel we know is good news. As believers, we should know what that gospel is. It is that euangelion, that that good news of salvation that God has given to us by grace, through faith alone, in Christ alone, by God's grace alone. That good news of our salvation begins with that bad news that we are sinners. That there is nothing that we can do to save ourselves. We are totally depraved with no ability to breathe life into ourselves. And God graciously does that as He calls us by the power of His Word. Paul is saying here, be prepared with the good news, with the gospel of the good news at all times. Be prepared in season and out of season as he tells young Timothy. Paul links the gospel to shoes. And we put our shoes on to make progress in our walk every day. 
I wouldn't think about going outside the mats and that gravel and rocks and, and, and stickers and, and, and soil barefooted. I put shoes on to go do the task that is set before me. Paul links the gospel, that, that presentation of the gospel to shoes so that as shoes carry us from place to place, so we are to share the gospel as we go from place to place. Paul echoes Isaiah's words here before us. As he says, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news. Who announces peace and brings good news of happiness. Who announces salvation and says to Zion, Your God reigns. This spiritual warfare involves sharing this good news of the gospel. Are you able to do that? Do you know who your God, triune, gracious, and good God is? And how your sin has cut you off from God? And how God has provided a means by which you, a believer, are reconciled to God? Do you know that you are reconciled to God through faith alone, in Christ alone, by God's grace alone? And this ability to share this good news is not only for sharing with others, but it is something we must remind ourselves of daily. Preach the gospel to yourself. A man by the name of Jack Miller, an American Presbyterian pastor, evangelist, and author who is now deceased, the founder of World Harvest Mission, now known as Serge, S-E-R-G-E, is well known for saying this, preach the gospel to yourself. He knew that Christians often forget that good news of the gospel, that we have been reconciled to our God through the work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we, we slip into thinking wrong thoughts about our sin, about our total inability to save ourselves, and God's amazing grace and His mercy to save sinners just as ourselves. So we constantly need to preach the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ to ourselves. Even before we go, preach it to others. Jack Miller was also fond of saying this. Cheer up. You're a lot worse than you think you are. But in Jesus, you're far more loved than you could have ever imagined. Put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and do what? Take up the shield of faith. In our spiritual struggle against our terrible enemy, 
Christians are exposed to all the flaming darts, some translations have there. And, and the, I mean, the word that is used here is much greater than one of those uh, darts that you stand in a, in a pub and throw at a target, a bullseye. These are more like the harpooner's dart than Herman Melville's Moby Dick. This huge javelin-type dart or arrow that is projected as a bow and arrow that is often flaming. John Stott, an English theologian, priest, says the devil's darts no doubt include his mischievous accusations which inflame our conscience with what, if we are sheltering in Christ, can only be called false guilt. Other darts, he says, are unsought thoughts of doubt and disobedience, even rebellion, lust, malice, fear, lack of trust, questioning our assurance. Satan continually bombards God's children with temptations to immorality, impurity, hatred, any anger, envy, covetousness, pride, doubt, fear, despair, distrust, every other sin that you can imagine. So take up the shield of faith. Roman soldiers used several kinds of shields. You might be very familiar with one that was about 24 inches across that was round that had a couple leather straps on the backside that one would put his arm into to, to shield him in the battles, the hand-to-hand combat, but that is not the shield that is referenced here. There's a second kind of shield to which Paul refers to here. This shield was about two and a half feet wide and about four and a half feet tall designed to protect the entire body. And I guess anthropologists have, have uh, discovered that uh, the Romans during that day and time were a little bit uh, shorter than most people are here today. And that, that shield, massive in its uh, design, covered them head to toe. The shield was made of a solid piece of wood and was covered with metal or heavy oil leather in order to protect from the flaming arrows. See, the Christian's shield of faith is that shield. Soldiers carried those shields and they were on the front lines of battle and normally stood side by side with those shields butted up next to one another together, forming a huge phalanx, extending as long as a mile or more across the battlefield. And anyone who stood or crouched behind those shields was protected from the barrage of enemy flaming arrows and spears. That's the shield. Paul is not speaking of a physical shield here, though. He's speaking of the Christian shield of faith. He's saying that our faith should be like that. It should cover us so that not a portion of us is exposed. All of us is protected by that Word of God. 
It should link us up with the faith of others, standing next to one another, shield to shield, arm in arm, hand in hand. Well, maybe after COVID-19. And because that shield covers our entire person, it links up with the faith of our fellow soldiers. And it should be able to to strike down whatever fiery arrows the enemy hurls at us because we are together. There is strength in numbers. For this is the shield of faith. Notice Paul doesn't say we are to take up the shield of the faith. He says, take up the shield of faith. Take up this general confidence in God, this assurance of your hope and peace and salvation. Our shield against Satan arrows is that kind of faith. It's faith that God can be trusted. Do you believe that? That God can be trusted in all that He is doing and all that He has said. It is knowing that when God says what He says, He does what He says, that He is able to keep faithful what He has said. And to keep us from falling and present us before His presence with exceeding joy. That He means exactly what He said and will do without hesitation, what He has promised. So we don't need to fear as we advance in the battle because the commander of our Lord's army, our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ has gone before us and has conquered, the confession says, both His and our enemy. So we have confidence in the promises of God. The faith Paul refers to here is not the body of Christian beliefs for which that he uses that term back in Ephesians 4.13, but basic trust, assurance in God. The faith that He gives us by His grace to trust in Christ for our salvation and continue to trust even in the midst of difficult, often trying circumstances. Trials, tribulations, knowing that whatever God has ordained is right. God Himself is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 30, and it is by faith that we flee to Him for our strength. The shield of faith is general confidence in God, assurance of His preserving and our persevering. For those he is equipped and called into his army. There's another picture of this in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read it, I know uh, one sitting here has recently read it during uh, the past year or so for a class at RTS. There, in Pilgrim's Progress, Pilgrim has uh, comes uh, face to face, is encountered with a man by the name of Apollyon. And when Apollyon says to Pilgrim, I'm going to spill you on the ground. And he then launches one of his fiery darts. Remember, these aren't just little pub darts. These are 
big, huge, javelin-type spears and darts. What does Pilgrim do? John Bunyan tells us that he happens to have, what? A shield. A shield. And he lifts it up, and that shield deflects the darts of that evil one that are levied against him. And Bunyan took that image, that picture, right here from Ephesians chapter 6. Take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This fifth piece of God's armor, the helmet of salvation, is represented by the Roman soldier's helmet. Remember, Paul was in prison here at the time when he was writing Ephesians. So he was probably very intimately uh, familiar with the Roman guards and their armor as they stood there before him as Paul was even chained and under arrest. A Roman soldier wouldn't have thought about going into battle without his helmet placed upon his head. Some of the helmets were made of thick leather covered with metal plates. Others were heavy molded or beaten metal. They usually had cheek protectors to protect the face and the back and the, and the, the neck. The purpose of that helmet was to protect the head from injury particularly from those dangerous broadswords commonly used in warfare of that day. Whether our headpiece, Stott also mentions here, is that measure of salvation which we have already received, that is forgiveness, deliverance from Satan's bondage and adoption into God's family, or whether it's the confident expectation of full salvation on that last day, including resurrection from the dead, to glory and Christ's likeness in heaven. There is no doubt that God's saving power is our only defense against the enemy of our souls. What does all of this armor continually point us back to? We can't do it on our own. God is our refuge and our strength. Never present help in time of trouble. This is the knowledge that we are safe and secure by God's power and His might. It is the knowledge that nothing can snatch us out of the hand of God. It is that knowledge that we read about in Romans. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or the sword? He goes on to say nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. This knowledge that we are God's, that we belong to Him, that we are kept safe and secure by Him, that we are saved by Him, that we are purchased by His precious blood, the Lamb, ought to be that blood that courses through the army's veins. Two of Satan's most powerful schemes against believers are doubt and discouragement. 
He wants us to doubt God's personal love and care for us, His protection over us, so that we become discouraged about our standing with Him and grow weary in our work for Him. So, put on the helmet of salvation. Place that helmet upon your heads, that helmet that is placed there by those nail-pierced hands of Christ at our conversion. That helmet of salvation that assures us that whatever happens, we will be safe. We will be secure in the promise that God has made to us through Christ. For it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. That verb there indicates that it's something that happened and is final in the past, but it has continuing effect here and now today. For by grace you have been saved, you are continuing to be saved. The helmet infuses optimism about the, the, the ultimate end of the, the battle. Because we know the war has been won. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That helmet instills in us a a hope that cannot be stripped away. The hope of salvation is a helmet. Paul refers to in 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, abounding hope of future salvation and glory with Christ. That is real. The helmet of salvation assures us that God will bring us safely to glory and He will finish what He has begun. For Paul says, I am confident of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. See, our struggle is not against flesh, and blood. In this struggle against the schemes of the devil, we must know biblical doctrine, put that doctrine into practice through daily obedience, sharing the gospel, preaching the gospel to ourselves, believing God's promises and power, and trusting in God to bring us home to heaven. Even the reminder that we should do all these things is a reminder that we can't do any of these things without God's grace. We are helpless and hopeless. There's a story about a pastor who was traveling on a small bus down a very bumpy road with someone with him, a college student seated next to him. That pastor asked that student this, are you spiritually ready for the temptations that you are going to face in college? This young man answered, you know, I don't have a problem with temptation. I have strong convictions. And the pastor took out a pencil, 
and said to the student, I can make this pencil stand up on the cover of my Bible even though this bus ride is bumpy. The young man said, yeah, I believe it if, when I see it. But I don't think you can do it. The pastor placed the pencil on top of the Bible, just as I'm doing here, and held it there. And he said, look, see? I'm doing it. The pencil is standing upright. Well, the college student did like you guys did. He chuckled and said, yeah, but you didn't tell me you would be holding the pencil up with your hand. The pastor responded with this. I said, I shouldn't have to tell you. Have you ever seen a pencil stand up on its own without someone holding it? And I let go of the pencil. And what did it do? It fell. It instantly fell over. And I said, the only reason you stand is because God is holding you up with his hand. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is where our strength comes from. Our promise-keeping God. This armor is not your armor. It's not my armor. It's God's armor. And as a reminder that our salvation and our security is found in one place and one place alone. In God's grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And He is the one who is holding us that we might stand firm in the day of evil. So Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of of his might. Put on the full armor of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Be strong. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. He doesn't tell us to stiffen up, to dig in, to reach out to the world for our help and our hope and our salvation. He says, Be strong where? In the Lord. As you put on the full armor of God. So that you will be able to stand firm against the methods, the schemes of the devil. For they will come if they haven't already. And remember the only reason any of us is able to stand is because of God. The promises that He has made to Christ on behalf of those He has come to save. He is holding us up, holding us together with the power of His hand. Can you see it? Can you feel it? Can you touch it? Maybe not. In real ways like I can touch this pulpit, this podium. But He is real nonetheless. Take heart. Our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ, has overcome the world. Heavenly Father, we thank You.
We thank you, Lord, for reminding us that we are weak, that we are helpless, that we are hopeless and without an anchor for our salvation, except by your gracious love extended to us, even while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. Father, may we know that even though we can't see much of the world around us, it is still very real. And the only way that we can withstand the attacks that will be levied upon us, toward us, and even against us in this life that we live is to stand with that armor of you, our God. May we leave here this day girded with a belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of our salvation, sword of the Spirit, our shoes, fit with the gospel of peace and go into this world with confidence and assurance that you, O Lord God, will never leave us or forsake us. Father, we lift up this prayer, all of our prayers in Christ's name. Amen.